Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on the clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. This is part three of our conversation with Sarah Meany. Sarah is a behavioral scientist. She teaches at the University of Louisville in Kentucky, where she's an assistant professor of marketing at the College of Business. Sarah's main area of research is how people pursue goals, how they handle conflict between multiple goals, and how they manage their personal resources, how they manage their time and their money, how they balance that with their personal interests, with work, and with family. She also teaches in the University of Louisville's Unique Equine Business Program, so that's certainly something that's worth talking to her about. In part one, we started our conversation with Sarah's lifelong love of horses. I met Sarah 20 years ago when she was feeling in over her head with her homebred Tricaner Thoroughbred Cross. Sarah did a wonderful job training him. She learned about clicker training, and the two of them developed into a great team. But sadly, she lost polio to colic when he was only 11 years old. We talked about how she moved on from that, how she created many opportunities to ride. And not only was she able to find many horses that people were happy to have her come and ride, she was also invited to clicker train these horses. So that brought us to part two of our conversation. I know so many people who have had the door almost literally slammed in their faces when they try to talk about clicker training. But instead, Sarah has been invited in to clicker train the horses she's riding. She's been a very successful ambassador for the work. So we asked a really important question. How does she introduce clicker training to the owners of the horses she's riding? As Sarah said at the end of that episode, I want clicker training to be out there and visible because that's how it becomes normal and part of how people think about horses. I don't want it to be a walled garden, even if it is a lovely garden. Sarah gave us some really just great insights on how to make yourself a really welcome guest in other people's barns. And at this point, we decided it was time to switch gears and ask her to talk about her research on goals. So that's where we're going to begin as we return to the conversation. Before we leave, though, today, I want to make sure we do come back to those competing goals and motivations when you have limited resources, you know, whether it's time, money, how do you handle that? Remember what we talked about at the very beginning of the, this, this discussion? And I think it's so relevant for horse people because, you know, there's always limited time and money and, you know, your situation, Sarah, is a very good example of, you know, you could have said, I have no time to dedicate to staying connected to the horse world. I have my my children, I have my studies, I have my job. So how, what do you suggest? How do you do that? That's your 
other big expertise, you know, competing goals. And the question I would have is, so we've now talked for two hours. hours. What is your, yes, what is your time frame, Sarah? Can we continue to talk or should we do this another? I am okay on my time frame. So my, my time is okay. Uh, so we can continue to talk. Uh, but of course, one of the things I think about is how we conflate time and energy. And we think it's just about having more time. And sometimes it's about having energy. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, 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 I'm like, I know that my sharpness <laughs> will, will start to fade. Yeah. Uh, but I have some time. I mean, I do think really digging into that, I, I would love nothing more to make than to really dig into that topic. I can kind of talk in some very, you know, general, yeah, a few general, like soundbite versions, and then you can tease it and then we'll have another one and we'll talk about, you know, some of the things you and I talked about, Alex, with goal setting and you know, what we can kind of dig into those in another conversation. Yeah. Yes. So tip, tell us enough so that we now want to do a full podcast on this. <laughs> yeah. Well, this, this will end up being a full podcast, but then we'll come back and do the next dive in. So, so, <laughs> so take, a take, take the first plunge, dip the toe in. The first plunge, I'll, I'll give a couple uh, little principles or ways to think about this uh, rather than lots and lots of, of tactics because that's a lot to get into. And I will preface this by saying, I am not yet practiced in talking about my work and my research uh, in I am learning to talk about my research in just accessible everyday terms. That's something that it's a skill I'm developing. I can do it about clicker training all day long and I am now learning to do it about academic research. Yeah. And that was, I think that's a really interesting, just as an aside, yeah. because that is something that we talked about right. when you were visiting and you know that you've been deeply immersed in this field. And so if we were one of your colleagues and, had also been deeply immersed in the field, that there would be a shared language, a shared familiarity with the literature, et cetera, et cetera. And so you could plunge right in in the same way that when we're around some of the behavioral analysts and your head just, after two seconds, our heads are just spinning like you know crazy. But it's saying, all right, so how do you step out of that delicious place where the language just flows to communicate. It's a bit like the being bilingual so that you are recognizing that we don't have the shared references. So what do you fill in in terms of what do we need in order to understand the concepts that you are presenting? And that's, I think that's such an important skill to recognize. It's, it's not a given that it's just there. Right. No, it's a very specific skill. And it's actually, ironically, a skill I have because in my first career doing marketing communications for university, I did this and I did it for other people's research. Mm. Um, but doing it for yourself, surprisingly, sort of like Susan's you know, experience with, you know, you have these principles and you do it for someone else and you do it for yourself. And, and I think it's relevant to the teaching and training because it's like, sometimes I guess I feel now in learning this, learning how to do this, it's like in writing terms, if you're, you know, an FEI dressage trainer, you're the one who's at, you know, at the Olympics, you're the Stefan Peters sort of of the world. Yes. And then 
you are teaching, you know, giving someone their first riding lesson, their first dressage lesson. And like, yes. oh, what is that? Or what does that look like? Or someone's encountering it for the first time and sort of you're used to talking. And yeah in those very specific shared languages. Um, but yeah. thankfully the, the, the ideas that I study. So we'll give you this opportunity to practice your skill. <laughs> yeah, you'll help me through it. Yes, you, you'll, you'll prompt me to be better. But, but that said, the, 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 I think it, one thing that's great for me is that the ideas that I studied, the, the fundamentally the things that I'm looking at are very, they're so relevant to our lives. You know, what you all said, these are, understandable concepts about feeling constrained for time or constrained for money. And so I'll have a couple of ideas to share about this. And then maybe we'll talk more in depth in a future podcast. But some ideas are that uh, budgeting is your friend. So whether that is budgeting your time or budgeting your money, uh, it can really help you. And it it is not an exercise in constraint. Uh, it's an exercise in thinking about your goals, your priorities, what matters to you, what you care about, what you value, and then just making sure that whatever resources you have go to those things uh, rather than to other things. And there are always other things. And the other things are often the default. Uh, so thinking mm -hmm. about intentionally allocating your resources across the things that you care about. And again, I think, and, and that's not even something intangible, like your energy and your attention and thinking about when am I going to have the energy or the attention for this kind of task? And then intentionally arranging your day and your activities so that uh, you're uh, so I'm a little bit, for me personally, right now, I'm a little digging deep because the middle of the afternoon is my low attention time, but I love talking to people. And so this gets me jazzed up. So I knew I could do it and it's fine, but, but this would not be a great time for me to be writing. So, so this idea about, you know, budgeting and not just in that kind of conventional, like, oh, you have a corporation with a budget that they have to submit, but thinking about allocating your resources intentionally. Uh, particularly, uh, and that's particularly more important as you have more goals and you have greater constraints. So, you know, if you have not so many goals competing for those resources, it's less important. You know, you have more room for error. Mm. But as you have more goals, yeah. uh, your work goals, your family goals, your riding goals, your health, your whatever you want to put in, and within each of those areas, drilling down many other things, you know, within each of those areas that compete um, within the goal hierarchy, to use some jargon, you know, having more goals increases constraint or having less resource increases constraint. And so budgeting is your friend is one, one idea I will seed out there. Um, another idea is to be optimistically realistic <laughs> or realistically optimistic. Uh, Meaning that we, as a human species, uh, many people, we we tend we we are biased toward optimism, mm -hmm. and we are biased toward optimism in thinking about what goals we can accomplish, what we can mm -hmm. achieve or accomplish. And generally speaking, it's a great thing. You need to, like people who are not optimistic are clinically depressed. So I'm not. So we need the optimism. Uh, it's it's 
healthy for us to be optimistic. But where it gets us into trouble, and I'm sure as a horse trainer, you see this all the time, is that when our expectations for a particular outcome really are not aligned with reality. Um, so, you know, I brought my horse to a clinic in the week, this weekend and I expect, you know, to go from zero to yes. 150 uh, or in our day to day when our expectations are not, um, it's, it's sort of like when, when the expect, it's not so much what I want to say, the big lofty goal is amazing to give you purpose and to give you meaning the big goal, you know, that you want to do something incredible with your horse or incredible with your career. You're like, That's great. And even if you don't, you know, get to that big thing, it still can be really meaningful and purposeful. But in the day-to-day, the kind of matching of your resources. So, you know, thinking that you could train this many horses in a day or grind through, you know, this much amount of work in a day and you really can't, that's really discouraging. It's really defeating and it can really undermine the longer term. So it's sort of like be big and optimistic at the big goal, you know, but in the, at the local level mm. in the day to day, be, try to be realistic. Mm. Um, the, the balance, the tension between optimism and realism. Um, a, a clicker training example for this would be uh, mounting block, having a horse stand at the mounting block. I would say, I want you to have the audacious goal, not mm-hmm. just that I can get on the horse without getting hurt, but I would love to say the goal is actually that I, my horse is on a, you know, a mat at the other end of the arena and I walk up to the mounting block and I climb on the mounting block and I whistle or raise my hand or whatever it is. And my horse comes, you know, happily up at whatever gate I'm requesting and lines himself up and stands in beautiful balance and welcomes me onto his back. And, you know, that like, that's the dream big, big. yeah, dream big goal. But then the realism is okay on today or tomorrow or this week, how much time do I have to train? How, what is my goal for today? What am I expecting to happen today? How much has to go into that big audacious goal? And when the expectations and, and our, our goals about, you know, the day to day are overly optimistic, it actually, um, it, it leads us astray from actually getting to the big goal. Right. And you start getting frustrated. And you get frustrated. And you know, why, why am I not riding? You know, oh. She right. wants me to keep doing this mounting block lesson. Right, I, right. I just want to ride. Um, yeah. So the balance between optimism and realism. Um, and then as with training animals, um, arrange the environment in favor of what you value most. Um, mm. So there, and I mentioned this a little bit with you, Alex, and I think our last conversation, but there's been a shift in my fields and continued behavior and in social psychology both of these fields do a fair amount of work on ideas around self-control um, and the pursuit of long-term goals so you know, difficult uh, goals that people are pursuing over time and how how do people exercise self-control to kind of resist short-term temptations to mm. achieve you know delayed outcomes so a lot of the domains where this is often looked at is in uh, academics or 
you know, career or health behaviors like exercise or eating well. So how are you kind of making those trade-offs between immediate rewards and delayed rewards and, you know, in favor and exercising self-control. And the, the kind of conventional way of looking at that was that self-control is this sort of quality that lives inside a person Hmm. and that you have this, it's a trait. Um, And it can be measured as, I mean, there are scales that measure sort of trait level self-control, but what in the last, yeah, maybe five to 10 years has really shifted toward the thinking is that it's, it's really about situ it's called situational self-control. And Mm. so the idea would that there would be, it's really not about going into a room and seeing the chocolate cake or whatever it is and resisting it. That's right. The marshmallow test. It's not about, um, staring at the marshmallow and just resisting it. The children were, where was it? They were put in a room and were told that, uh, that if they didn't eat the marshmallow, they would get two more or three more or something. And, and so then the researcher would go away and they would observe the children and to see which child uh, ate the marshmallow and which child didn't. And they said that these were predictors children were showing self-control who didn't eat the marshmallow yes. and these were predictors of future great performance down, down the road, road and all the rest yeah so so we're changing our perception of what was actually going on in that marshmallow well and even changing our perception yes. of that experiment because that experiment the the sort of news headline of that experiment why it's had so much staying power and so famous and not just academia, but in popular conversation is like, well, now we see, you know, did you resist the marshmallow or not? And if you're a marshmallow resistor, you're going to score well. And if you're not, then you're, you know, all hope is lost for your kindergartner. But actually the real takeaway from that study, that line of inquiry was that these are strategies that can be learned. Um, And so what did the children who waited, who delayed gratification, who delayed, you know, to get the extra marshmallow, what were they doing? Well, they were doing things like covering their eyes. So they didn't have to look at the marshmallow or turning themselves around Mm. or singing songs about things that were not marshmallows. So they were effectively hiding. They were doing different, different ways and different ways, but they were hiding the marshmallow from their attention in, in various ways. So, so it's a had, change of environment. They, had, they were changing their environment a, to the extent that they could. Yeah. And they had a broader repertoire. Mm, of right. in, yes. And if you teach I love this other conversation. children <laughs> who are not, you know, trait self, you are not marginal or resistors, but if you teach them those strategies, they do just as well. Right. So they do, they do fine. So, so the, the idea, you know, it's, it's not, I mean, yes, there are people who are sort of just spontaneously lean more toward one way or another, but or they learn, they learn very early. Or they learn and and we don't know where or how yeah. they learned, but they mm-hmm. learned it. And exactly. And so, you know, don't tr- even try to think about it from this sort of temptation resisting. Think about it uh, about similar to my 
discussion around budgeting that, you know, you're thinking about what, what is the outcome I want to obtain? What is the more important goal? And then how do I structure my environment in favor of that outcome? Mm -hmm. How do I sort of put my finger on the scale? And so for food, that might mean you just don't have a certain kind of food in your head. And a lot of the kind of popular uh, programs, you know, whether it's Weight Watchers or Alcoholics Anonymous or a lot of the kind of popular behavior change programs use pieces of this, mm. have pieces of this built into it. But yes, you you kind of, you change your environment so that the uh, path of least resistance is what you would most like to to have occur. Mm. And to bring this around to clicker training, you're in the bar, let's say you're new to clicker training, you like it, you think it's interesting, you'd like to do it with your horse, but every day you go to the barn and somehow it just doesn't, it just doesn't happen, right? Um, which is not surprising because your, your behaviors at the barn are so habitual and routine. That's another topic we yeah. to talk about, but the default would be that it wouldn't happen. And particularly if the expectation, if the, the goal is not realistic, if it's that you're going to have an hour to do it or that you're going to sort of train right. some whole behavior, but a way you might structure the environment would be to say, uh, I'm going to have um, a little baggie on the, the stall door that has, you know, I just put three handfuls of uh, hay stretchers and it's on the stall door and there's whatever you need right, to, to clicker train is placed strategically in the most convenient location and it just lives there. Mm -hmm. And so that every time you're in the barn, it's just so easy, you know, your target and your treats and your clicker, whatever you need uh, is right there. And so you bring your horse into the stall and it's like the easiest thing to just say, let's do five repetitions of something. Um, that would be one thing yes. you could do uh, for exercise. One of the classic recommendations is, you know, if you're trying to exercise in the morning and you're struggling to do that, that you put your workout clothes right next to your bed. You know, you lay them right out the yes. night before, or you even sleep in them, <laughs> um, which I think during the pandemic, a lot of us were doing, but we weren't necessarily <laughs> exercising. <laughs> I certainly have slept in things that could be considered athletic. <laughs> know, the 24 hour pants, but, um, yeah. you know, you sleep in the thing you can go for a walk in or go for exercise in. And so, uh, arranging the environment in favor of it. So it's not like, Oh, beating up yourself about, I can't remember to do this, or I'm just a bad person because I just don't find the time or I don't make it happen or, well, no, your environment isn't affording that outcome. And so mm. change your environment. And this is what we do in training, right? Change the antecedents. Yeah. Yes. Arrange the antecedents in favor of the behavior, the behavior you'd like to see in yourself. In yourself. And and I also say all this not saying I always perfect research is me search. I don't always good at doing this for myself. So you have to study these things so that I uh uh I develop, you know, ways, ways to to do this for myself. But um so that's another big piece, you know, planning these situational strategies are the best. Uh, there's another concept in this. It's actually a concept out of uh, design and design thinking, not really so much um, behavioral science, but it's called the affordance of an environment or the affordance of an object. 
And so, you know, I'm sitting in a chair, mm. a chair affords sitting a mug like this with the hand, the handle affords picking it up that objects and environments have certain affordances mm. and those guide how they're used, how people behave, how people interact with them and, mm -hmm. uh, and our behavioral environment. It's, it's, you know, our environments for our, for our goals and our behaviors in life are, are similar to that. So if I have a, a horse in a barn uh, where the with conventional stalls that setting up the stall so that there's a stall guard across the door, which makes it very easy to do some uh, simple clicker yep. training interactions. Yep. That would be a affording uh, clicker training. Uh, affording clicker training. Yep. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And having the treats and, you know, having that stuff. If every time you want to do it, you have to like find carrots and cut them up. And oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, no, who's ever going to do that? Some people do, but very few people. That's one of the reasons I like tongue clicks. Yes. Because, you know, keeping track of now, where's my clicker? Which pocket, yeah. particularly living in a cold climate? You go, all right, which pocket did I leave my clicker in? Well, I always know where my tongue yeah. is. <laughs> it's uh, so far, so far throughout my entire life, it's always been found in my mouth. Somehow, yes. <laughs> yes. I've never had to go hunt for it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, so many of those things. Uh, and then I think the last broad idea I'll throw out is that, you know, motivation matters, but habits are the leverage um mm, yes so wow that's mm. yes yeah, so so expand a little bit on yeah. that because that is a powerful yeah so we talk about these things in a language both in academia and in popular just like conversations we talk about you know what goals and how motivated are you and we talk about those like i'm a goals and motivation researcher <laughs> you know and, and so we have this idea that, you know, our motivation, again, inside of us as individuals is what really what we need. And well, I'm not doing this thing because I'm just not motivated enough. Or it, and I wouldn't say that's not relevant. It is. It's part of the picture. Um, but really, when you're talking about longer term pursuits, not, you know, do this one thing one day for five minutes, but when you're talking about longer term pursuits, which everything that we're talking about in horse training falls into that bucket, things that require yes. repeated effort over time. Um, and most anything worth doing in life falls into that bucket of requiring repeated effort over time. If we're mm. in that bucket, really what motivation does for you is it gets you started. And the motivation can be the, the spark that gets you to buy the treats and put them on the stall door or read the book. But what keeps you going and what ultimately makes you successful is developing habits that align with those goals. Um, that is what you need. Um, and so one of the reasons that motivation is a huge area of study uh, in various places in academia is because it is so fickle. It's so finicky. That's why it's so variable. It's so easy to increase it and decrease it and move it around. And it's so malleable. And that makes it a great thing to study because there's a million different ways to 
push it around and manipulate it. And, and under this, you know, there's so many, you know, under this circumstance, people will might be more likely to be persistent, but on these circumstances, habits are actually relatively understudied. Part of the reason is a big part of the reason is that they're really hard to change. So it's mm. very difficult to study them because you need a, it's hard to get anything to change. And, you know, you can't publish the, well, we did lots of things and nothing changed paper. That's right. going to go nowhere. And you have to do it over time. So even if you can change it, it's going to take a long time to make the change. So they're very mm. conservative behavior systems. So it's an automatic conservative behavior system, whereas goals are uh, more, let's say more intentional or less automatic. and um, very malleable and flexible, which is great because your situation changes, your circumstance changes. And that sort of goal part of your brain will say, well, my behavior must now change because my circumstance has changed. And now how do I achieve, you know, change to achieve the outcomes. So it makes you very flexible and your habits are not very flexible, but if your circumstance hasn't changed, you know, your basal ganglia in your brain is going to just say, you know, you walked uh, into your house, it's the end of the day, you've just got back from work, you just went into your kitchen and you got some food, and now you're in your living room and you're, the bottom of your brain is going to sit you on the couch and turn on the TV. If that is something you have done, yeah. guilty as charged, in that circumstance over time consistently. Mm -hmm. Because your brain is going to say, this has worked for us in the past. Therefore, we're doing this. Hmm. Um, it's going to just kick in. And you won't even need to think, you might think you did it on purpose, yeah. you, but you don't have to. It will just happen. Because habits, I think, are just fascinating because the percentage of our day that is run by habits is It's astounding. astounding. It's more than, it's conservatively, astounding. it's half, but it's really more than that. It's much more than half. Right. And that um, that you can use habits. So, you know, I find that understanding and making deliberate use of the fact that habits exist and they're there is really, um, it's your friend. It's yes. like when you say that budgets are your friend, well, so are habits. So I know that uh, at this time of the year, my uh, training time for Robin is in the evening because in the morning he's full of grass and wants to take a nap and that's not a good time to ask him to go right so um, but in the evening he loved to have a play well in the evening I'm tired you know I've had a full long day I've usually done a fair amount of hard physical work as well as the mental work I'm Tired. But I know that uh, so when we get done here, I will be going driving to the barn. And uh, when I get to the barn, I may be thinking, oh, this just is not a riding night tonight. I'm right. feeling really right. tired. Which but is the case for so many of us amateurs who can only ride at the absolutely. end of a long day. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But I know that the pattern, the habit pattern that is established is that I will look around the barn and see all the manure piles and I will uh, clean them up. And that that is the cue, the trigger 
for the next piece of the, of the sequence, which is, oh, I, I feel like working Robin. Yeah. And so that precursor, I recognize absolutely is my cue, my setup, my precursor habit that triggers the sequence of I'm going to work my horse instead of saying, oh, not yeah. tonight. I'm tired. Yeah. Because I'm always going to be tired. Yes. Almost always. Yeah. And, and that, I think what your, your, your story there, Alex, it's really touching on what is so brilliant and also frustrating about habits is because, so the, the difference, like operationally, what's the difference between a goal, goal, uh, behavior that is uh, goal oriented versus habitual behavior. So they are the two main classes of um, instrumental or purposive behavior, both habits and, and goal-oriented behavior help us achieve desired outcomes. Uh, that's, so yes. they're both types of behavior that do that. Uh, but the distinction is that the goal-oriented behavior is controlled by, if that's a reasonable word to use, but is, uh, is controlled by the expectation of the outcome. So in, whereas the habitual behavior is controlled by or triggered by the situation, the context. Okay. And so uh, uh, yeah. a tangible way to talk about that, and I'll bring it around to what you're talking about to your story, but uh, one of my very favorite studies uh, done by Wendy Wood and David Neal and, and some of their colleagues who, who've done a lot of great work on habits, they brought people in, uh, really cool study, and they did it on eating popcorn popcorn eating behavior. And so they brought people in and measured their habitual popcorn eating behavior at the movies. So they asked them questions about like, do you, when you go to the movies, do you always get popcorn? And, you know, so sort of measured uh, how habitual their popcorn consumption at the movies was and brought them in and put them in a theater. They did it, you know, in an actual movie theater and had them watch a movie and gave them all buckets of popcorn. Um, and just met, and then measured how much they ate. Now, they also had manipulated the popcorn. So some people got fresh, delicious, tasty popcorn, movie popcorn, and some people got popcorn that was stale and had been sitting out for a week or two okay. in their desks in their offices. <laughs> it was really horrible, like stale, squeaky, awful popcorn. Yeah. And what they found is that for people who were not habitual consumers of popcorn at the movies, mm -hmm. they ate a lot of the delicious popcorn because, you know, I just sat you down and gave you some delicious popcorn and yeah. said, have all you want. And they said, wow, this is delicious, meaning there is a desirable outcome. I eat it. It tastes great. I'm happy. So they're goal-oriented behavior. They consume more of this delicious popcorn because it's rewarding. When they got stale popcorn, they tasted it. They said, this is horrible. This is not rewarding. Why am I eating this? And they didn't eat very much of it. Mm -hmm. But the habitual people who already had a strong habit for eating popcorn at the movies, they ate the same amount, no matter what. Mm -hmm. And wow. so that to me is, I love this because it just so beautifully, uh, there's a term, you know, it bottles the phenomenon. It captures that what that really means. And so what that means is that if your behavior is under the control of or being prompted by 
motivated by a goal. If the outcome is rewarding, you're going to keep doing it. But that makes sense, right? Because you're getting what you want out of it. It's rewarding. And But if it's habitual, your brain is just going to say, we're in a movie theater, popcorn's in front of you. In this path, you know, over time, this has produced a good outcome. So it's going to have you eating popcorn. Even if in that situation, you are not actually getting a, re- a reward. And it's particularly true if the behavior is leading toward a short-term reward, but is undermining sort of a long-term reward because your brain is still going to say, this is working just great for me. Mm-hmm. You know, watching Netflix all night instead of doing other things or staying home instead of going to the barn, you know, because it is going to continue to be rewarding. In the animal behavior literature, the way they look at this is, you know, the rat in the maze and you teach the rat to run right in response to, you know, they put the rat in the maze and it gets to the end of the maze and they give it a food reward. And it is considered habitual or overlearned once the rat will continue running, even if the food is either not present or if the food is actually unappetizing. So if the food tastes terrible or if the food think maybe in some of the older versions, like maybe makes the rat sick a little bit, something like that. Um, I'm not totally certain if that's true, but so initially the rat starts running because he wants to get the delicious food or that that's what rewards the behavior and that's what gets it going. But once that is overlearned or learned to the level of, of being habitual, I'm in a maze, I run, I'm in a maze, I run. Even if I get to the end of the maze and there's nothing there for me or what's there for me, isn't rewarding. Um, so the way this works against us is if the thing that it keeps us doing is actually undermining our, our broader goals, our longer term goals. Um, but it works beautifully for us if the things, our habits keep us doing is keeping us in that direction we want to go. So in your story, you have this sequence of activities. That is your context. That's the cue. And you know even if you don't feel like going to the barn that night or you don't want to train or you don't, you don't have the motivation, you know, even if it's not sort of there, by the time you're at the barn and you're done cleaning up, you're going to train because you have that habit established. And it would actually be harder for you not to train than it would be to train once you're in that context. And that's the other piece of it. So even if the thing, that behavior, that focal behavior is actually challenging, but if you build, build it into a habit, it becomes more difficult to do something different than to continue doing that, that behavior in that context. But if you change the context, it can fall apart very quickly. Yes, absolutely. So when they work together, it's very powerful. Because it will also get you through the, you know, right. not not every training session is going to have bells and bells yeah. going off. Yeah. You know, there, you know, especially this time of year, given that maybe it's a hot night and the flies are out, it's not a very satisfying ride because the flies are are competing right. for you know poor Robin's uh, ability to enjoy his part of the ride. Both the the motivation, the long-term goals, and uh, yeah, I'll eat the popcorn even though it doesn't taste very good. You know, I'm going to have a, I'm going to 
to work even though the flies are out. And it's going to be a short ride because the flies are out. But I will at least have gone into the arena with you. Absolutely. If you're familiar with the structure of habits, you can really make them work for you. Yes. You can be be constructional and deliberate in in sandwiching the... Because I, I know I always have to clean the barn. Right. If you're deliberate in constructing habits that are going to work for you, then they're very powerful. Completely. And very... Oh, and there's another cool idea in what you just said, which is the sandwiching. So I've talked a little bit about arranging the environment. So, you know, construct the environment, arrange the environment to cue, to facilitate the behavior you want. But then, you know, that's your antecedent. And then that behavior is that habit, whatever it is. And then the consequence. So as good clicker trainers, and this is honestly something that I haven't really seen in so much in the academic literature, but what's next in the sequence, right? So the pre-MAC principle, if you follow, you have a, what's the word for the the low likelihood behavior and you follow it with a high likelihood behavior or previously reinforced behavior, you know, you're reinforcing what goes back up the chain. This is what we talk about with cues and this is in many of your other podcasts. And so if your sequence is, you know, ride and then whatever it might be that that's nice for, for you in that circumstance. Uh, one thing I often used to do when I had to do some driving back and forth is I would ride and then I would often call my family and talk with them on the way, long distance family in the car with, with Bluetooth on the way home. And that was also lovely. And so like, and yeah. if, so riding also gave me this additional so the whole chain of behaviors was in the barn, but then I also had this nice, you know, have a nice conversation with a family member. And that was part of that chain and it followed the riding and it also sort of reinforced the riding or you can construct the whole sequence so that what comes next actually further strengthens that, that, that focal behavior. You know, the building of a new habit, you know, you talked about the uh, running clothes, you know, right. the exercise clothes. Well, so you're you're a horse person. You have one horse. Maybe you have a desk job. So it's a challenge to stay fit enough right. to ride well. So you've decided that you're going to develop an exercise program in the morning, and then you'll go to the bar right. at night. But we all know how successful <sighs> yeah. are in there saying, yes, I'm motivated to go out and begin jogging because I want to be fit enough right. to ride my horse well, my young, energetic horse, I want to ride him well. So you've got the motivation, absolutely. Right. But do you have the habits developed that are going to expand into the habit of a morning walk, a morning right. run, and that sandwiching, beginning with that, you know, I've, I've put uh, put the exercise clothes on the chair, and maybe I might begin with, I've, I put them on the chair, and in the morning, I pick them up, and I set them down again, and, and that's the beginning of yes. developing my habit. Exactly. And I, and I sandwich those between two things that already are already established. are established and ideally yeah. yes you have something that's already established and in the, in the exercise one a great way 
for someone like me who loves morning coffee or someone likes tea or whatever, most people have something that they, you know, habitually consume in the morning that they enjoy would be, you know, you're already going to wake up and get out of the bed at some point and you sandwich the putting on the clothes and then it's, you get the morning coffee or the whatever it is. And so that morning coffee reinforces. Another key thing that you being you spontaneously offered in your example was that you start with putting on the clothes. Done. That's where Mm -hmm. you start. So you, you shape it. You have Mm -hmm. to shape habits. Um, That's another really important piece of this because people think, and this is a little bit where I was talking about earlier with realism and optimistic realism is that the people say, well, I'm going to start running every day, 30 minutes a day, Hmm. starting tomorrow. Like, I don't even need to ask whether that's going to continue because it's not, Um, it just doesn't work. That's not how behavior changes and it's not how habitual behavior changes. But if you say uh, there's a really wonderful and very accessible book uh, by someone named BJ Fogg, Uh, he's at Stanford and it's called Tiny Habits. And so he's developed a a methodology around this and it's a really fun book to read. It's not written in academic terms. It's very hands-on and practical. And what he teaches is, is what you were saying is you take the, what is the tiniest kernel of that behavior or what would be the seed of that ultimate behavior, right? And so you've got, you've fertile ground. You want to plant that seed in fertile ground. So you want to plant that seed in a place, a context, a place in your routine where it has some chance to survive. Uh, Because yeah, if I tried to plant my exercise seed at the end of my day and I have tried, it's not going to happen. Mm. (laughs) Not since I became a parent. Before I was a parent, I could do that, but I just can't anymore. It's just, it's never going to happen. So you know, you, you find that fertile ground, you, you, where in that routine can you sandwich something where it has a chance of survival and of growing? And then yes. you plant the seed, the, just the putting out of the clothes or the putting on of the running shoes and then let it just start. You know, just keep consistently doing the tiniest instantiation of that behavior and it will grow over time if you put it in a, a good location. Um, It will grow into exercising more and running more and and it will be easy. And so for the training, right? Just plant the seed of put the, I'm just going to, you know, when my bring my horse in or after my ride, you know, if you already have a riding routine after the ride, I'll bring the horse back out to the stall or out to wherever it is. And I'll have the tools right there. And I will, click for one thing, you know, mm-hmm. do one click or, you know, one simple thing. And then, you know, you just let it, let it grow. And then it becomes reinforcing because you see the success and the behavior is itself is enjoyable. And it can be hard. I think when you hear this, you think, oh, well, that's just never going to work. How is that ever going to work? But, you know, that's just silly. I put my running shoes on and I don't go running. That's ridiculous. Well, you don't do that for three months, though. <laughs> no. And, and it's the same with loopy training, where people will think, you know, I, I want to ride. And you're having me uh, have my horse touch a target? You know, that's ridiculous. 
How is this, how is this going to help right. me with my goal of being able to go out trail riding with my right. horse, who currently right now uh, is super spooky and bolts for home the minute I turn back to the barn, but I still want to trail ride. How is this going to help right. me? It's that whole trust the process, because it is astounding how starting with this tiny kernel of success Gross. And you have to have the success because you have to be yes. reinforced, right? So anything yeah. you do that is a habit only ever became that way because it was reinforced initially. Mm -hmm. um, without that, it's not going to stick. Um, it will stick around, right? Right. Indefinitely, almost, um, once it's established, like the tree, right? You know, you get if you've ever been out uh, in California and seen the redwoods, the the giant you know, Grand Sequoia yeah. National Park, like those trees, I mean, those are they're just hard to even wrap your mind around how big they are. Yes. And they're very, very, very hard to move, right? That would be really difficult to move, but they all started in the same way, just the seed. And, you know, you're kind of, your habits become those sorts of trees, but they did have to, that seed had to have had to be reinforced. It had to have water. It had to have soil. It had to flourish. It had to have a start. Uh, and, and that's where they're the most vulnerable and the most delicate behaviors are when they first start. Because they weren't habits when no. they started. Habits are not habits at the, their inception. No. But particularly when you start to insert them into routines that you that are established right. and that have strong anchors within yes. them, then your habit will definitely begin to grow and flourish between those anchors. Whether you want it to or not. Whether you want it to or not. Whether you meant it to or not. Yeah. When we built the barn, mm. and not only do we just recently celebrate our 150th yes. podcast uh, we just passed on July 4th of 2021. We just passed our 10th anniversary at the Clicker Center Bar, oh. which is this is astounding that we've been there for 10 years. But one of the things that I was very deliberate about is this recognition of how much environment cues, cues us, mm -hmm. how much the environment cues our behavior, how much of our behavior is under... Uh, stimulus control right. you know what i feel what i'm thinking is very much under stimulus control the habit patterns are very much under stimulus control and i know that um that uh, the post office annoys me and that i could be in the the best mood in the world but when i pull into the post office and i put my foot on the first step going up towards the uh, the post office i can feel my mood just like that shift into grump right and it's absolutely an environmental cue oh it's time to grump right <laughs> and I, I i worked really hard to you know to be pleasant when i'm in the post office but there's that underlying grump anyway so when we moved to so, and there were things in the old yeah. barn that frustrated me and it created grump and so when we moved to the new barn I was very deliberate in what I 
was doing and what I was thinking and, you know, the really worked at the uh, emotional reactions to things mm -hmm. because I did not want to carry over the grump uh, that was from the boarding barn to my beautiful, new, pristine, clean environment that had none of those contextual cues. See, we can be deliberate about yes. these things. Yes, absolutely. And this has also been a big part, not the only part, but a big part of what's been so hard for people in the last year, year and a half during COVID. Uh, you know, yeah. remote work, remote schooling. And for some people, it's been great. But for many people, it's been a struggle. And a big part of that is that if your routine and your habits were to commute, go into an office, go into a specific location, all of that's a huge chain yep. of context cues yep. that yes. are telling you to work. And then work. you get there yes. and you just work, whether you feel like it, don't you just work. It just happens and it happens more easily yeah. when you just. But now you're at your home and, you, and your, your context cues are to turn on the television and watch right. whatever. Right, or fold the laundry do or do the dishes or walk the yeah. dog or, you know. Yeah, but your, your context cues are, oh, I'm in my living room, I should turn on the television, not... I'm in my living room. I should open my laptop and work for right. the next. Right. I, I, so yeah. I defended my uh, dissertation from my living room um, because I did that in the early stages of COVID lockdown in the US. <laughs> and I did it. It was the first. Now it just seems so strange to say it in retrospect. But at that point, you know, I hadn't, I'd never seen a research talk online before. Um, it was like the first one I went to was my dissertation. Part of what it, it wasn't like the content of it was hard for me to do because I knew what I wanted to, I mean, I knew my presentation, I knew my project, like that wasn't, and I had talked about it a million times. I wasn't, but it was like, I had to say to myself, how do I, how do I access the part of my brain that is, you know, presenter mode? Mm. How do I get presenter yes. mode to happen in my living room? And, mm. you know, and so I did my best. I made sure that my young son was not in the house <laughs> to interrupt and the dog. And, you know, I had all that kind of, okay, let's get out of it. And then I sort of said, well, what can I do? And I, I took a shower and got dressed. And I, you know, and I made sure I wore my suit. And I even not just wore the suit, but I wore like, I wore the less comfortable dress shoes, even though obviously nobody was going to see them. I could have been wearing, you know, yes. pajama bottoms, right? I could have had a Zoom mullet and just had a suit on top and anything on the bottom. Right, but right. I said, no, I need to, anything I can do to cue myself to present fluently. Hmm. Um, and, and when we had, uh, so so that was a huge, and it, it, it went okay. I think it would have been even more fluent in person, but it, it helped, it certainly helped. Yeah. So all of those context cues. And the other practical lesson is that if you are experiencing a natural change in context, you can take advantage of it hmm. to change your habits. Yeah. So if you've just moved, yes. which I have just done, um, if you moved to a new house or a new city, or you've changed jobs, or you have become a parent, or a child has moved out of the house because 
because other people are our contexts or you've had a relationship that has begun yes. or ended of any type, you know, people are context cues too. Yes. Any really significant context change is an opportunity potentially to reshape your habits in a way that would be much, much yes. more difficult to do uh, in the absence of that external change. Um, or if you don't, if you kind of continue, which could be fine, it's either an opportunity to one of two things, to reshape or to further generalize and strengthen to a new context. And so depending on what you're trying to achieve, um, just like it would be with training an animal, right? You train at home in the kitchen and you train the dog to sit or to lie down and then you go out into the yard and now you don't have that behavior because the kitchen was part of the queue and you can, and then you have to generalize it to that context. So you can do that for yourself, either make sure you generalize if you want to, or say, well, I actually would like this to stay in my past dustbin of habits past and I'll try to you know not bring this along for the ride in this new context I think it, there's such power in recognizing how present habits are in our lives in the day we couldn't live without lives. them we could no. not live without them we would not want to live without them no and and so they are they are absolutely uh they are a huge part of the running of our day. And but recognizing that we can be deliberate in how we let those habits express themselves. Right. And that we can del be deliberate in changing mm -hmm. them. So that we can be in control of our habits rather than having the habits totally controlling us. Right. right, being at the mercy of them. It is being at the mercy of them. That's right. 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 Really yeah. Well. well, I'm glad we did this little nutshell, <laughs> you know, that's been now going on for an hour. <laughs> so I'm really looking forward for the in-depth dive. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, we've done the habits dive. Yeah. Well, for that some was of good. it. Yeah, that first, was good. Yeah. I enjoyed yes. that. So, so we will, I think, I think yeah. this is a good yeah. time to say we have now all talked yeah. enough for one afternoon. We have talked the afternoon away and clearly Sarah, we are going to be emailing you again and saying, all right, we're ready for another deep dive and we'll figure out a good time to do it because this has been a most yeah, enjoyable afternoon, great. really mm -hmm. enjoyable. And I thank you. Immensely. Thank you, Sarah. You are most welcome and just my pleasure just such a treat yeah. i never could have imagined 20 years ago this would <laughs> i would be here and doing what I i'm know. doing and talking with you and over zoom and, and i really do have other questions but now it's time for me to reframe <laughs> well and you and i have to thank yes. you both really deeply from the bottom of my heart also for giving me a very reinforcing first experience of just having this kind of a conversation about this behavior change and the kinds of things that I think about and study. Because as I said, this is not yet practiced for me uh, in this kind of context. And this was really enjoyable and you kind of helped draw out 
things that I wouldn't have thought of down. And so I, I just, I really yes. appreciate that. And that makes me want to come back and, and do more and, you know, and get better Excellent. at this. <laughs> it could become a habit. <laughs> it could become a habit. <laughs> <laughs> so we will definitely, we will definitely do it again because this was a really good afternoon. What a great conversation. And we truly are well on our way to making this a habit because we have Sarah scheduled for another afternoon of conversation. We'll be able to explore some of the many questions that Dominique and I have. So look for that later this fall. And in the meantime, stay safe and have fun with your horses.